The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This is your first time here at Sacred City. My name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. Thank you for coming. As he was reading, or she was reading that scripture, if you heard that little, that was me stepping on a landmine, hoping not to blow any body parts up today, but this is going to hurt a little bit. Uh, I told the guys back in prayer, I feel like I'm... Uh, leaning over the plate, taking a 90-mile-an-hour fastball for the team this morning. Um, this is not going to be fun. I'm just going to throw that out there. You heard the scripture. You heard where we're going. Sacred City, we just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. I was wondering if I got up here and I just started out with 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if anybody would have noticed. Uh, but that's not where we're at. We are at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10. And I'm going to let you know, um, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, then most of what I'm going to say is not going to apply to you, um, because this is written to Christians, and um, elders, myself, a pastor, we are to judge uh, the sheep, we are to judge Christians, we are to apply the word of God to Christians, and I also want to proclaim it to the world, because this is the best way to live, but... um, it's going to sound really foreign to you this morning, and, it, and, and if you've grown up maybe in church, but um, maybe kind of a touchy-feely type of church where they didn't really preach expository verse by verse through books of the Bible, this, today's teaching might shock you, uh, it might kind of blow you away, it might make you really, really angry. Um, I'm going to say that's okay. I'm not going to be able to treat this subject exhaustively by any means. So what I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to do my best. And then I'm going to try to follow it up with a couple of posts on our members' website, the city. And uh, we'll have some further study for you there on the city that you can kind of go into yourself. Um, but most, most importantly, as your pastor, I w- I'm here for you. So if you, if you have questions, this is going to spur questions. There's no way I can answer all the questions. I was going through the list of, well, what about this? And what about this situation? What about this situation? And there's, the list is too long for me 
to cover today. So you're going to have other questions. So please email me, message me, call me, make an appointment with the office if you want, whatever. We want to go through these questions. I want to answer these questions the best that I can, bring you to the Bible, show you the scripture, and we're going to work through them together. So uh, with that said, let me pray and we're going to jump in. Most gracious God, you have given us your word to reveal your will, to reveal your ways, to reveal yourself to us, wayward humans. Thank you for that. Thank you for showing us the way to holiness and the way to happiness, the way to you. Thank you for showing us that. Uh, many times when we read it, we're smacked with just how different your ways are from our ways. How much, as you say in your word, higher your ways are than our ways. And... Um, Today, we are going to be confronted with it, very countercultural um, message. And we ask that you would do the work that only you can do, and that's take the Word of God through the Spirit of God and apply it to our hearts. Let us see its goodness. Let us see that it's right and true and holy and good, and our ways are not. Father, would you bring repentance in our heart? Would you give us grace this morning? Would you um, help me? Preach your gospel and your good news with boldness, even in this really difficult subject and text this morning. Uh, this is for your glory. As the song saying, as you sanctify us, be glorified. Make us more like Jesus. That's what, that's what our cry is. The church is a people who want to be made more like Jesus. So do that for your glory and our good this morning. In Christ's name we said, amen. Well, a couple years ago, as we were... Preaching through the book of Ephesians, I preached a six-week mini-series on marriage. It's by far been uh, the most popular series of messages that I've ever preached. It was really based around um, Tim Keller's book that came out at the same time, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. And if you weren't here for that, you can find all of those online at our website. But in those sermons, we spent a lot of time working through Ephesians 5, where Paul shows God's definition and God's purpose of marriage. In it, we kind of, I did preach a whole sermon on this, said uh, marriage is God's theological theater, all right? It's a theater, marriage is a theater for God. What does that mean? It is meant, it was built by God to display God's one-way covenant love to a watching world. Marriage was God's way to display his one-way covenant love to a watching world. Now, do you know what a covenant is? Most of us, I have a lot of work to do this morning. Most of us um, don't know what a covenant is. We think, we hear covenant, we think contract. And a covenant is actually a lot different uh, than a contract. A contract says, you do this, and if you do this, I'll do this. A contract says, if you don't do this, then I won't do this. So a contract is, you know, we hear a lot about it, like a prenuptial contract this day and age, right? Like two people come together and say, hey, as long as you have a job that makes over 75K, right? As long as you don't leave your laundry laying on the floor, right? As long as you agree to cook for me five nights a week, hey, then I'm here, right? Nothing says love like that, right? As long as you do your part, I'll do my part. Now, we have a lot of contractual relationships. Uh, we have contractual relationships with our bosses, our employers, our employees, um, and those, those are okay. 
but the marriage is meant to be covenantal. And what covenantal is, covenantal says, this is what I'm going to do. And in fact, in the Old Testament, um, when people would make a covenant, they would come together, they would sacrifice an animal, they would literally tear the animal into pieces, spread blood on both sides, and they would make an agreement together and they say, I promise to buy this land from you, and if I break my promise to do that, then let me be like this animal. Let me be torn asunder. Let me be destroyed like this animal if I break my side of the covenant, right? And so in the Old Testament, you see a lot of covenants, several different covenants, but you would see they all have uh, blessings if you obey it, and they all have curses if you disobey it. So marriage God built to be his covenant, his expression of covenantal love. And what do I mean by that is this. God, we, human beings, we have... We're, we're, we're uh, displayed in a couple different ways. Number one, really real flattering ways in the Bible, okay? Number one, we're God's enemies. That sounds fun, right? God's enemies, here's another one. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. So let's just say we are enemies of God at birth because we have sin in us, and we are walking dead men or women, okay? We are zombie-like in our sin. We're moving around flesh and blood, but we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Think of ourselves as dead on a table. Now, Jesus, God, the Father, sends Jesus Christ, this is crazy, to come show his covenantal one-way love to enemies and dead men and women. Okay? God sends Jesus Christ to marry enemies and to marry dead men and women. And through Jesus' sacrificial love, the Father's in heaven. He says, I want you to go marry those, the elect right there, those people. I want you to go marry them. Jesus Christ comes down and through the Holy Spirit, he enters our heart by faith, right? We hear the preaching of God's word. We respond in faith. We're regenerated through the Holy Spirit. We were dead men on the table, but through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit, we've been made alive by Christ Jesus. We were enemies of God, but now we've been made friends of God. We've been made into the bride of Christ. That, that marriage is a picture of the work that God has been doing in all the world, okay? So God marries somebody who's not like him. God marries somebody who's uh, way more broke. God's not broken. God's perfect and holy and has everything in himself. And God goes and marries broken, dead enemies. And through this love, he makes them into his children. He makes them into his family. He makes them into his friends. He makes them into his bride. Okay? That's what marriage is a picture of. To a man and a woman being brought together in a covenant before God, and God using that to change them. Now, what I want you to see, God does not come down to find somebody like him. Right? God didn't come to earth looking for his perfect mate. Right? He'd still be looking. God is perfectly happy in himself. No. So, it's interesting if you go back about 100 years, it's only, only about 100 years, and you listen to wedding vows, wedding vows were very covenantal. They understood a covenantal form of love. See, like when God came and loved us, he didn't say, I'm going to get, make you my bride if you're good enough, if you keep up your end of the bar, if, 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 if. He said, I'm going to love you in such a way that it will change you. 
I'm going to commit myself to you in such a way that it will change you. You will be my people and there's nothing you can do to change that. I'm going to love you. That's a covenant. I will act loving towards you no matter how I feel, no matter how difficult it gets. We see this in Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't sitting in the garden going, oh, can't wait to do this. I feel so in love with these people right now. I got the butterflies and the goosebumps. Just nail me to the cross. Let's go, right? He's agonizing. He's, his capillaries are bursting and he's sweating and he's sweating drops of blood. And he's saying, if any way possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done, right? So listen, a covenantal love says, no matter how I feel, I will act loving towards you. I will do the loving thing no matter how I feel. Contract says, if I feel like loving you, I'll love you. And it's interesting, if you go back about 100 years and more, but even just 100 years, maybe even 50 years ago, if you hear people's vows, you're at the, at the altar, we do a lot of weddings around here, vows were very covenantal, right? I take you to be my wife or my husband. I will, I promise to love you, I promise to cherish you, I promise to put m your needs above my own, till what? Death do us part. All vows, no feeling. There was no feeling. And see, people really, they understood what marriage was about. There was no feeling in those vows. But it's so funny, I get couples all the time go, can we write our own vows? We wanna write our own vows. You know, it's, and the internet's out there, so anybody can go find some vows. And n never fails, when people want to write their own vows, this is what they sound like. Baby, you know I love you. I promise to all, and, and, and it's going to go on and on and on, and it's all gushy, it's all feelings, it's all, you know, you just make me feel this from the first time I saw you, and, I'm from, and it's all based on feeling. There's no promise to be loving. See, a covenant says, I'm a smart human being, and I realize that I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner. So when we get these two people together, it's probably not going to go well. So you need a covenant from me to say, when you're acting crazy, I'm going to love you. Modern day vow says, when you're acting crazy, girl, you crazy, I'm gone. <laughs> Modern vows are so based in our feelings and if we should know that feelings come and feelings go. Covenant doesn't. So let me get this, let me, let me put this out there. Here, here's what happens in marriage. Two people who are totally wrong for one another come together. I just, I'm going to lay that out there. If you're searching for the one who's right for you, <laughs> mm -mm. You're a sinner. There is no one but Jesus right for you. Two people, not right for each other, come together, sign a covenant, pledge a covenant in front of hundreds of witnesses. They vow to make sacrifices, incredible sacrifices for one another, no matter how they feel. Here's one. No matter what age does to you, honey, I will love you. I will think you're sexy. I will pursue you, no matter what gravity does, right? Now, modern day, contract, well, you know, she ain't exercised in a while. Well, you know, she don't wear that makeup she like she used to. Well, you know, see, contract 
So what do we see? We, we, everybody's got to go out and get surgery. Everybody's got to go get, look younger. Contract versus covenant. See, a covenant says, I will cherish you. I will love you. And love is an act far before it's a feeling. I will act loving. Not, I can't command my feelings. I will act loving towards you. I will cherish you. I will be faithful to you no matter what comes my way. Not, oh, you know what? I will be faithful until you 2.0 comes along. And if she's smarter, if she's better looking, if she's got a better job, well, I might just marry up. See, that's a contract. Honey, I'm with you until something better comes along. Right? That's not a covenant. That's a contract. Now, what God does is God uses this covenant of marriage as his workshop. He takes these two sinners who are not right for each other. He locks them in a house together. And then he waits for the sparks to fly and the explosions to happen. And most people, when they get married, and this starts to happen, sparks, explosions, they immediately think, this is a sign that I've made a mistake. I've married the wrong person. And it's so interesting that the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. In fact, the Bible teaches we always marry the wrong person. Or at least we think we do. Why? Because nobody else's sin makes sense to us. That's how screwed up we are. All of our sins and all of our weird quirks make total sense to us. But other people's sins seem so abnormal and strange to us. Why does he eat like that? Does he have to take huge bites like that? What a pig! See, what is going on is that in a covenant marriage, God uses our sinful tendencies and our spouse's sinful tendencies against us. Now listen, when I say against us, what I really mean is for us, (laughs) for our holiness. It's like sandpaper and wood, right? Your husband has strange quirks. Yes, that's true. He's weird, okay? That's, 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 all, that's true. And his weirdness gets on your nerves. That's understandable, okay? But here, your response, see, he's weird, but your response to his weirdness, your response to his strangeness isn't weird or strange. That's called Sin. Your responses are judgmental, self-righteous. How how hard is it to put your underwear from there in the hamper? Right? See, your responses aren't weird or abnormal. Your responses are sinful. They're judgmental. They're self-righteous. They're impatient. They're not done in love. So he's strange and you're a sinner. Congratulations. Now, What I'm trying to say is, listen, you, and marriage should tell you this, marriage should teach you this, you have some things to work on. You are, quote unquote, rough around the edges, I hate to say that, rough around the edges, because it's more like you have something really weird growing in you, right? It's not rough around the edges, you've got a third arm that needs to be cut off, right? 
You are stri- You have sin damaging your relationships, and you need work. You get angry at his quirks, and then you lash out. You blame others. Listen, if you yell when you get angry, that's nobody's fault but your own. Nobody makes you blow up. Nobody causes you to flip out. That's on you. You are impatient. Do you know that's sin? When you blame that on your spouse, when you blame your impatience or your anger on your kids, you made me do it. You made me crazy. If you just listen to what I said, oh, if I was perfect, you would be patient? How surprising. If I did everything you wanted me to do, you'd be patient? If you do everything I want you to do, I will be happy. Oh, that makes sense. Listen, when you blame your impatience on your kids or on your spouse, when you push off the responsibility of your lack of self-control onto others, listen to me, you're avoiding redemption. You're avoiding the need for a savior. You're avoiding putting that sin in you to death. You're avoiding Jesus. You're avoiding the gospel. And here's the truth. People should have been telling you your whole life that you have an anger problem that needs to be dealt with. People should have been telling you your whole life, you are self-centered. You think the world revolves around you. You are really impatient. People should have been telling you this your entire life. Now, maybe if you had a good mother or a good father, maybe they did tell you that, right? But you thought, no, mom, you got the problem. Dad, my only problem is I live in a house with you. As soon as I'm out of here, me and your problem, I don't have no problems because my problems revolve around you. So when I'm gone, I'll be good. The only problem is what? Right? You get out of the house. When I get out of the house, I'll finally be happy. Mm -hmm. How's that work out for you? They call that college roommates. Finally, no. My problem's my mom. My problem's my dad. No rules. I'm out of there. I'm out of there. You know, their clutches. Finally, I can be free. Finally, I can be happy. And what's that college roommate do? Gets on your last nerve. Right? Anger lashes out at them. They're weird, they're strange, can't handle it. Now listen, here's the problem. We're gonna get to divorce today. If you were in a home, if you're lucky enough and blessed enough to have a mother and father that didn't get divorced, I pray that your mother and father were good parents, uh, that were saying, this impatience is not acceptable, this rebelliousness is not acceptable, this anger is not acceptable, But, but more than likely, if you grew up in a split home, if you grew up in a divorced home, you probably didn't get that because they felt so guilty about their divorce that one, they just try to outplease you, typically. Come over to dad's house for the weekend. Dad just wants to spoil you. He's not going to press on those issues. Mom feels guilty. Dad gets back. Oh, he had a party all weekend. Mom's got to outdo that. So neither one can really effectively parent because their own guilt and their own shame. So let me show you something. Every other relationship in your life, when things get difficult, 
When your anger or your impatience or your jealousy, it gets too close, you just push away and bounce, right? You distance yourself from the relationship. And what I want you to see is most of the time, that is you avoiding redemption. You're saying, I don't want to change. It's not me. The problem's out there. Was my parents, was my roommate, was my ex-girlfriend, was my ex-boyfriend, Problems my husband, problems my kids, problems my boss. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Listen, I have a problem with A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I probably, I might possibly want to look here, maybe. Just, I mean, maybe. Statistically, over 50% people in our country get divorced. One out of two marriages end in divorce. Why? They used to say, oh, the problem was that person, that person, that person. Well, then, so statistically, then, then the second marriage should fix that, right? Oh, that person was wrong, so now I know what I need. Oh, I'll choose this one. Oh, statistically, second marriages, two out of three of those marriages end in divorce. Problems them, problems them, problem, problems you. The problem is you. See, marriage is meant to be different by design. Marriage is the only relationship that is meant to be forever. You're in your family's, you're in your parents' house 18 years, well, maybe 35 these days, I don't know. But 18 years, you're with your spouse, 50, 60, maybe more. It's meant to be forever. There's no running from your issues in marriage. See, marriage is the relationship that is supposed to get you to stop blaming others and to say to yourself, why does, this is a thought that might change your life right here. Why does his sloppiness make me so angry? Why does her tone of voice make me feel like a child and why does that make me so mad? Maybe we should ask ourselves this question. See, this is what marriage is. Marriage is a rock tumbler. Have you ever seen these rock tumblers? Take these big, you know, these ugly rocks. That's you. <laughs> put, them in this, put them in this tumbler. Throw in some powder. I don't know what that powder is. Let's just say that powder is the gospel in this illustration. Put that in there. <laughs> Lock them in tight. Crank that thing on. That thing is locked in there. What are they doing? They're banging against each other. They're, I mean, that's conflict that's happening in there, right? They're not in there petting each other. <laughs> Baby, you're so good. You're so good too. Conflict is happening. And after a week or a month or whatever, you take that thing out, they look totally different, right? Shiny, nice, clear. Something that you didn't think could have came from that big black chunk of rock. Now this thing is glorious. That's what marriage is. Takes two imperfect people and beats the crap out of them. Literally. See, the Bible says that is God working on you. He's trying to put to death that stubborn sin that clings to you, that has followed you around your whole life. And one of the chief ways he's going to do that is through your marriage. But what does our culture teach us to do when things get tough? What does our culture teach us to do? When things get tough, we run. We bail. We blame. 
It's the other person's fault. I can't stand their sin, and I deserve to be happy. So if God wants me to be happy, then I will divorce this person and find one that's not so broken. Well, I'll find one that doesn't have issues like that. Mm-hmm. Now listen, if you've been married for any amount of time, you know that's an understandable thought. That's an understandable place of mind, right? If you've been married for any significant amount of time, you know that things will get difficult, sometimes so difficult in the marriage that you wonder, will this ever get better? Will that person ever change? Will these situations ever be better? So you start thinking, maybe the grass is just greener on the other side. Maybe I should just cut my losses and try to start over. Maybe my marriage is so jacked up that I don't think it can be redeemed. I don't think we could ever be happy. I don't think we could ever come together. I don't think this thing could ever work out. So maybe we should just cut our losses, start over with somebody else. Now, if you've thought that, or you're currently thinking like that, I get it. I understand. It's totally, totally human. It's totally natural. But here's the deal. For Christians, divorce is off the table. For Christians, divorce is not an option. This is why, and I know, Half the people in this room probably divorced. I know the will, the guilt, the shame. I know, I know. Jesus says in Mark, he says in Matthew, he says in Mark, he says, in the beginning, God made them male and female. He brought them together. He blessed them. They came together. The two became one in a covenant. They made babies. That's covenantal marriage. So what God has joined together, Jesus says, let not man separate. Let not man put asunder. And later on in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to them, listen, here, listen to this. This is sweet Jesus, right? We all like sweet Jesus, love your enemies, you know, be kind to those, golden rule stuff. We all love Jesus, right? Jesus says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus cuts right to the chase. He speaks really clearly here. Divorce is wrong for Christians. And it does not matter how unhappily married you are. Now think about this. Jesus was speaking here to a highly conservative Jewish audience, most of whom would have been married, but most of whom would have been in arranged marriages. Their parents chose their spouse. Now, I know that seems really primitive to us and strange, but in some ways, it might have given them a bit of an advantage to having a happy marriage. See, in an arranged marriage, they didn't get married thinking, I found her. This woman is it. She is perfect. She completes me. 
right? This person is going to be the one who makes me happy. This person is going to be the one who tells me every day how all the others were wrong about me. Everything they said about me, this person's going to say they were all liars. They were all weird. You're phenomenal. This person will tell me every day how beautiful I am, how smart I am, how sexy, how sinless, and how superb I am. This person is the one. So you know, in an arranged marriage, a Jewish audience, they don't get, to, they don't get married thinking that. In an arranged marriage... You get, to get, you, you, you get married thinking, I don't even know this person, but I think we're going to make it work. Let's build a family together. Let's build a life together. Let's be loving towards one another and hope that feelings will follow. And most of the time, they do follow. When you're acting loving towards another person, feelings typically follow. But now here, this is interesting, but now here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is speaking to a different context. Still first century, but this is a Roman city of Corinth. In the Jewish culture, women didn't even have the right to vote, uh, right to vote but women didn't have the right to get divorced. So women, if you were in an arranged marriage and it was bad for you, it's bad for you. Pretty, pretty rough. So Men could divorce their wives, but women couldn't divorce their husbands. But in the, in, in, in the Roman society, women had more rights and women could get divorced. And so Paul here is in a different context. He's speaking here to a wild city, right? With a lot of sexual energy going on, a lot of prostitutes going around. He had, see, the Jewish context to us might seem really backwoods conservative, arranged marriages, and women didn't have the right to get divorced. But the city of Corinth was definitely big city progressive. It wasn't conservative. It was big city progressive. And we look at verse 10 here. Look what Paul has to say. Chapter 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Look, not I, but the Lord. What's he saying there? Paul is quoting Jesus. Paul is saying, what I'm about to tell you didn't come from me. I'm just quoting Jesus. Jesus says this in Mark 10. He says this in Matthew 5. He's quoting Jesus. He didn't come up with this. And what he's doing, this is what he's doing right now. He's in a different context. So he's speaking to something that Jesus didn't speak to. Jesus, women weren't divorcing their husbands there. Paul's speaking to, so he's taking the words of Jesus. He's contextualizing them for a new audience. For something that Jesus didn't have, Jesus didn't speak to specifically. This is what he says. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate, divorce her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Jesus in Matthew 5 says the only reason for divorce is sexual immorality. Pornea is the word he uses. Sexual immorality, Jesus says that's the only way out of divorce. Paul here is going to expand on that a little bit. 
She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. He's, this is now him applying it. Jesus never spoke to this specific issue. So now Paul's applying the words of Jesus to a new context. That if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay, Paul is in a different context, but look what he does. Verse 10, Paul's tone drastically changes. To the unmarried, I give this charge. I give this command. Paul's not mincing his words. He's being very direct here. This is the command to the Christians in Corinth. This is a command to Christians today. Paul clearly says in verse 10 that it's from Jesus. This is before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were even written. Paul's writing this. But it's interesting that Paul says the same thing as Jesus does in Mark. He's speaking to a liberal society. Jesus is speaking to a conservative society. They both say the same things about divorce. Paul says to the progressives in Corinth four times, do not get divorced. Do not get divorced. Malachi, God says, that God, it says God hates divorce. He hates it. Now, Jewish context. Conservative, arranged marriages. Women had no rights to divorce. Roman context. Arranged marriages, but progressive. Women could bounce if they wanted to. Men are having sex on the side with prostitutes. No divorce. No divorce. 2014 context where for the last 40 years, we've had what's called no-fault divorce. You just want to get a divorce, you can get a divorce. No, you don't have to prove any wrongdoing by the other person. And I don't have time to give you the statistics of the lives, of the marriages, of the family, of the children who've been devastated by divorce. Most likely person to be living below the poverty line is a female with child. What's that from? Divorce, shacking up. It's devastating our society. I don't, I, 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 I'm not going to try to scare you with all the stats. But here's what we have in our society. We're not, we're not like the Jewish exactly. We're not like the Roman exactly. I, I think this is where we're at. Marriage has become an idol. This is what it is. This is is how we see it. Marriage is is the end-all, be-all for me now. So this in a marriage is what we're looking for in a person. This person must fulfill me. This person must justify me, give my life meaning. This person must give me purpose, must give me happiness. This person must make me feel good. And I'm going to tell you what. Marriage wasn't created for that. 
That's putting a weight on marriage that's, that no one but God can carry. See, that's, listen, that's God's job description. God is the one who gives your life meaning. God is the one who gives your life purpose. God is the one who completes you. God is the one who satisfies your soul. If you're looking for that in marriage, you're putting a weight on it that marriage cannot sustain and that will destroy the marriage. And I'm gonna tell you, that is the cause of most divorces in our culture. We're looking to a person to satisfy something that only God can satisfy. One person or both of them expect something out of the marriage that only God can give them. What are our reasons for marriage? Or what are our reasons for divorce? I'm not happy. I'm not happy. So underneath that, I'm expecting this other person to make me happy. Have you ever had kids? Just, do you know how impossible it is to make your kids happy? Absolutely impossible. You could spend $1,000 in the next hour. You could go to Walmart, Toys R Us, take them to the movies, come home. They're like, what's next? We're never going to do anything. It's impossible to truly satisfy someone's sense of happiness, of wanting to be happy. I'm just going to say, you not being happy is not a biblical reason for divorce. We've grown apart. Well, you can grow back together. We've changed. Mm -hmm. And you can keep changing for the better. I don't love them anymore. That was that covenant thing, remember? See, anybody who's been married, if you go back 100 years, they're going to tell you, are you always going to feel loving towards your, wife, your spouse? Right? No, you're not. But a covenant says, I will act loving towards you. And by acting loving towards you, I'm trusting to get through this season and the feelings of love will follow. But listen, we've got plenty of reasons in our society. I think the Corinthians had better reasons than us. And let's just examine their reasoning, why they were getting divorced, and see what Paul says to, says to it. See, if you remember, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, Paul has spent the last few chapters telling us how important our physical bodies are. Remember? Good stuff. Paul says, our bodies are meant for the Lord. Our bodies are meant for our spouse. That sex is a powerful gift given to us by God that deeply unites a husband and a wife in such a way that literally our souls touch. The deepest part of us is given to another. And this gives us a picture of God. It gives us a picture of the gospel. When a male and a female come together, it shows us something of the image of God. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three deeply united into one. Somehow our union with our spouse pictures that. Now, they got that good theology, and then this is how they're reasoning. Well, if sex is that powerful... What if I'm married to an unbeliever? What if I'm married to a pagan? What if I'm married to an idol worshiper? Should I stop having sex with him so my soul isn't polluted or made unclean in some way? Should I seek a divorce? If he's worshiping an idol, 
I'm worshiping God. That's darkness. This is light. Then we're coming together to have sex. Does that pollute me? Is that a, should I divorce him? Should I not have sex with him? Last week or two weeks ago, we saw it. No, we're continue to have sex with your spouse. Paul says no on both counts. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and this wife says, all right, you became a Christian. I'm not, but that's okay. I, I can see how your faith is making you better. I'll stick, I'll stick around. I'll stay. If that's the case, then the man should not divorce his wife. Same thing. Wife becomes a Christian. Husband says, yeah, well, it's kind of good for the marriage. Actually, you're being a lot nicer. I dig this. It's good for you. I'm not into it yet. The wife should not divorce her husband. Now, can I just, can you believe this? Jesus said, If a person divorces their spouse for any other reason than sexual unfaithfulness, that person, if they marry again, would be guilty of adultery. Adultery. Look what Paul says here. Keep reading. Fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is actually made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I'm going to pause there. I'll come back to that. But look, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So he's saying two people are unbelievers. One becomes a Christian. The other one says, you're a Christian. Hey, I liked all the freaky things we used to do. I like being able to go to the, you know, the strip club. I like all the weird stuff that we used to do. I'm not into being this Christian. You do your thing. I want to go do my thing. I'm leaving. Paul says, see, this is what Jesus says. Sexual immorality is the only reason for divorce. Paul contextualizes that to a different context, and he says there's one other reason. If they leave, the unbeliever leaves, let him go. The unbeliever leaves, let him go. So here Paul says, if a person gets divorced, they have two choices. Stay single and celibate or remarry their divorced spouse. Now, this type of teaching, okay, it usually blows people's minds. They just can't wrap their heads around it because we've been so influenced by our our current cultural context where my personal feelings are the center of the universe. Doesn't God want me to be happy? I could never be happy in this marriage. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Does God want you to be happy? Okay, first, God is happy. 
I just love thinking about that. He is the only one who's actually completely happy all the time because of his own perfection and his perfect relationship in the Trinity. See, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all perfectly happy, perfectly satisfied with one another, perfectly humble, giving way to each other, acting loving towards one another. You go first. No, you go first. You go first. No, you go first. You're the best. No, you're the best, right? That's what they do, right? This is that... Theologian, one theologian calls it the happy land of the Trinity. That's what the Trinity is, very happy. God is very happy in himself. So God is happy, and listen, God does want us to be happy, but here's what the Bible teaches. True happiness, happiness that lasts, comes from holiness, It's happiness without baggage. It's happiness without strings. It's happiness without regrets. It's happiness that isn't destroyed by its own self-centeredness. Why can your child not be happy? Because they're self-centered. And it's me, 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 me. And that's a never-ending, it's a never-ending labyrinth, right? Make me happy, make me happy. More, 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 right? That's why children of the, uber wealthy. They're some of the most miserable people on the planet. So does God want you to be happy? Yes, you bet. Absolutely. But God knows the only way you will be happy is if you are holy. So God's chief mission is to make us holy like Jesus. So, First part of your statement, does God, doesn't God want me to be happy? Yes, he does. But happiness comes through holiness, not doing whatever you think will make you happy. And here's the second part. I could never be happy in this marriage. Okay, let's talk about that. See, that's where you're wrong. For you to make a statement like that, just let me tell you what this requires. For you to make a statement like that, that requires you to literally push God off his throne. You have to dethrone God. You have to take the place of God and you have to say, I know better than God. I am all-knowing. I am omniscient. I see all things. I know where every string, every string, every line of action, I know exactly how it will, what it will produce and how it will act. I know all things and I know what will make me happy. And like all sinners, you're going to hate this, in your gut, all sinners hate God. And all sinners in their gut who hate God, they say this, I know what will make me happy, more sin. That will do it. One more drink, one more hit, one more one night stand, one more broken relationship, one more marriage, one more person, one more sin will make me happy. It's worked so well in my past. So divorce will actually make my life better. It's better for the kids, better for me. If you've been through a divorce, you might have worked through some of that. You might have convinced yourself of that in years back or looking back on it. Was that true? You know what, let's just cut ties, let's just be done. If you have kids with them, you realize that you can never do that. 
You're going to see them the rest of their life. Every Christmas, you're dropping them off at dad's house. There is no clean cut. Divorce isn't a clean cut. That's a lie. There's always going to be baggage. There's always going to be drama. There's always going to feel guilt. There's always going to be shame. Divorce will make my life better. Divorce is what will make me happy. No, it won't. God says sin is always a destroyer of happiness. Divorce doesn't make things simpler. It makes things more complex. In missional community, we, we, love, we, we, we live like families. We do holidays together. We do birthdays together. And it's so crazy. And even when I'm doing premarital counseling, I get two couples together. And we're talking through how the two are going to become one. They're going to leave their father and mother. They're going to make their own family unit. What are you going to do for holidays? Well, I have three dads and three moms. She's got two dads and two moms. We got to go to everybody's house for Thanksgiving. You can rent out the junior theater, I guess. Like, I'm going to go here, then we're going to go here, then we're going to go here. See, divorce doesn't make things simpler for anyone. It makes them more complex. It's not the easy way out for anyone. Divorce destroys happiness. You don't get divorced and then just go on as if everything is normal. Nothing will be normal. It won't be normal ever again. Now listen, knowing what we know about marriage, about God's purpose, the the rock tumbler, it's the theater where he's trying to show his one-way covenantal love where two imperfect people come together and they learn how to receive grace from God. I'm broken. I was an enemy of God. I was a sinner. I was dead on the table. But the grace of God has changed me. So therefore, when you act like a fool to me, when you are sinful towards me, when you have crazy tendencies, I'm going to give you grace that the Father has given me. And in that marriage, I'm displaying the grace of God to the watching world. And God, through that, he actually uses your sin to sanctify me. He uses my sin to sanctify my wife. He's using our sin against us for our holiness, for our happiness. Knowing what we know about marriage, that it's a theater of God, where his one-way love is meant to be displayed in the lives of two imperfect people as they journey towards God together. Listen, can you see why Jesus, why Paul would say, do not get divorced? Divorce is short-circuiting your sanctification. Divorce is you're in the rock tumbler and you say, I'm, you're hitting the eject button. I want out. Guess what? When you hit eject at the rock tumbler, what comes out? That dirty rock that went in there, that broken rock, that ugly rock that went in there, you're ejecting. You're, you're pushing the eject button on God's sanctification process in your life. It's taking a detour on your holiness and your happiness. That marriage is meant to show the world the power and the beauty of grace in the lives of two sinful people. So when two Christians divorce, it's showing a false gospel to the world, a powerless gospel. 
God is not good enough. God is not gracious enough to fix us, to work on us, to give us the grace that we need to stay married. And not only that, one of the greatest pictures of the gospel in the New Testament is that Christ marries us. And Christ is so committed to us, there is no eject button. Christ says, I've never lost one of my sheep. All of them the Father gave me, I'm gonna make them all holy, I'm gonna sanctify them all. Every single one that the Father's given me, I'm going to deliver to the Father. Jesus never divorces us. He never hits the eject button. And listen, we've sinned against him far more than we've sinned against our spouse. See, our spouse is a sinner that we respond sinfully to, and there's all this, who started it, right? Sin started it. But Jesus is sinless. He's never done anything but give us good things. He's never done anything but give us himself and give us grace and lay down and die for us and give us grace and his own righteousness and forgiveness. And yet we sin against him. Listen, divorce, Jesus quotes the Old Testament and he says that divorce is given as a concession because of the hardness of hearts. Because of the way unrepentant sin makes us hard, divorce was given as a concession. It's never God's perfect will it's never commanded or condoned in scripture. It is always one of the effects of sin. But scripture does make some concessions for divorce in the cases of sexual morality and abandonment. And in that abandonment, it's usually physical abuse is included in there. But listen, just because a spouse has committed adultery doesn't mean you hit the eject button. God doesn't say, if your spouse commits adultery, divorce them. Reconciliation is still the gospel's highest aim and therefore should be exhaustively pursued before divorce is even considered. And listen, Remarriage is only permissible in certain circumstances. If you were a Christian, let me, let me do this. I'm just, I can't give it all, all situations. Two unbelievers come together and they end up getting a divorce. You become a Christian. All of your sin was placed on Christ and you've been washed clean. Divorce included. You're free to remarry. Now, there are some situations that you, in that situation, if you're wanting to get married, you should talk to the elders and we're going to ask some questions. We might pursue, we might find out about your ex-wife or ex-husband. Why? Because you never know what God could do. The highest aim would be reconciliation. Maybe they've become a Christian. Maybe they've become a Christian. You haven't seen them in 10 years. Maybe they've become a Christian. Maybe you should come back together. I don't know. Reconciliation is always the highest aim, but if you were if you were if you were a Christian 
and you got divorced for unbiblical reasons and you're single, more than likely, you should stay single. If you think you have a situation that is different, then we should talk. We should go to the Bible. We should look at it. Maybe you do. Did that person have an affair? That person abandon you? Okay, maybe there's some reasons for. This is the high view that God puts on marriage and on the covenant of marriage. If you're in this room and you're seeking a divorce, you should know that you might not have a right to get a divorce and you might not have a biblical right to ever get remarried again. I realize how strange this sounds. How countercultural, how our personal holiness or our personal happiness, we, we want to put the highest, you know, our feelings are the highest thing. How could a person say that? I, and, and I really don't want to be like, I hope you don't, you can lash out at me. And like I said, I'm st- stepped on the landmine this morning. This is, this is what God says. He, he built the institution of marriage. Now listen, if, you, if you've been in this room, if you've been divorced and you're remarried and you're here, all right, then confess that sin to the Father and you stay married. The next chapter is going to tell us all about that. As you are, stay as you are. Right? There's not like some, well, should I divorce this one and go back to the first one? No. <laughs> but listen, I, what I want to know, I want, I want you to see is many churches back away from this to their own shame. They don't want to teach what Jesus taught. They don't want to teach what Paul taught. It's too difficult. It's too countercultural. So they just back away. We don't want to do that. And listen, some churches just draw a line in the sand too. No divorce, no circumstances. Then they have to create all kind of weird loops, loopholes to get around that. But we don't want to be either one. We want to say, what does the Bible teach? How can we be gracious and be loving? And if you're in a situation, we want to counsel you. Myself, the potential, the elders that are in candidacy right now, we want to sit down, we want to talk about it. What's it look like? What's the Bible teach for you? Do you have a right to be remarried? Do you need to seek reconciliation with your, with your old spouse? What's going on? Now, there's a lot of stuff going on. You, you know, maybe they, they committed adultery on you or you committed adultery on them and then they got remarried. That nullifies it later on in the chapter, 28 through 29. It's going to say if they die, you're free to marry. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Murder's still a sin. Right? Honey, why are you putting your seatbelt on? Don't. It'll wrinkle your shirt. Stopping short at every light. Listen. If you... If you've been through the pains of divorce, it is awful, it's hurtful, it's soul just wrecking, chaos, hurts, right? And I don't want you to hear from me this morning, oh, my life is just ruined then. She's always going to be unhappy. I'm just going, 
Marriage won't make you happy. Jesus will make you happy. He'll make you holy. And right now, you're probably doing the same thing you did in your first marriage. You're putting all your hope in the next guy or the next girl. And you're going to destroy that one. And I'm not drawing a line in the sand right now and saying you could never get married. I don't know your situation. They're all different. But I'm saying we need to talk about it. We need to walk through it. We need to go to the scriptures and seek the scriptures and know that he has your happiness as his highest good right now. But it's, it, it's holiness. That's what it is. Sometimes the only way we can make sense of this Listen, we're walking through this right now. We have a covenant member of our church who's having an ongoing affair, who's unrepentant, destroying family, destroying her marriage. Destroying, I mean, the people around her her missional community. And the enemy says, divorce is the easy way out. And we're the family of God. And we're meant to come around, we're meant to love, and we're meant to pursue, but things like this are damaging. They're destroying. And I, I just want us to pray as a family that God would bring repentance that God would convict her of her sin, that God would bring her back to repentance and, and that she wouldn't go through with this. And the elders, myself, missional community, the fight clubs, there's this la- all these layers of accountability that are doing what the Bible tells us to do and they're confronting in love and we're warning in love, but there's gonna come a time where the line is drawn and they're excommunicated. And this is not because we're mean. We wanna get some you know, sin her out of here. It's because we don't want to see this happen. We don't want to see sin have this devastating effect on marriages and on families and on brokenness when we have the gospel. I don't think it's possible, other than maybe sexual immorality or abuse or someone just leaving, I don't think it's possible to get a divorce without cognitively forgetting and turning away from the gospel. You have to deny God. You have to say, this is what you have to do. You have to forget about how much he forgave you. You have to forget that you were dead on the table. You were his enemy. 
He married his enemy and Jesus says, I'm never giving up on you. I will go to my death loving you. I will prove to the ends of the earth how much I love you. I will take your sins upon myself. Though I didn't do anything wrong, I will take all your wrongness onto myself and die for you. To divorce your spouse, you have to go, I didn't really need that. She sinned against me more than I've sinned against you. You have to shut off the the spigot. You have to shut off the spigot of grace up here. You stop receiving grace in order to walk away from that marriage. Scary. Father, may we see ourselves as in dire need of your grace. That we are broken, we've divorced and remarried when we shouldn't have, we've divorced and are sinning sexually right now like we shouldn't have, we're planning on getting a divorce like we shouldn't have, we've done so many things, Father, as your rebels, as your enemies, and yet in Christ, when we look at Christ on the cross, we see the Son of God dying for his enemies, pursuing his enemies, making his bride holy through his own self-sacrificing death. May that power, the power that's in the gospel, may that empower us to love our wives and love our husbands well, to endure through difficult circumstances, to push through when it seems like everything is being thrown at us, when all hell surrounds us, when we can't see any hope for any future happiness. May we hook up to you. May we receive your grace to empower us to be gracious with our spouse. And Father, for the one who's in unrepentant sin and who's seeking to turn from her covenant, may your grace move mightily. May you bring repentance. Father, would you soften hearts, all of our hearts this morning, would you soften it? Those of us who are self-righteous and we say, I would never get a divorce. I can't believe people get a divorce. Would you soften our hearts to see our own wickedness? Your gospel is good news. You pursue wayward sinners. You heal wounded, broken people. Father, as we come to the table this morning, may we come as repentant Saints, we've turned from our sins. We've turned from our own ways. And may we receive the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ that satisfies the longings of our soul. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.